David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. This is a special episode of a Wednesday night class I'm teaching on the mission of missions. As we have considered, what is the mission of the church? We also need to ask, to whom is given the mission? Can I just get a one-way plane ticket and just go and do missions all by myself? Do I really need the local church to help me? I mean, can we just entrust everything over to mission-sending agencies? Uh, agencies that may or may not have conversations or relationship with any local churches. Or, if you were a person who worked for a mission-sending agency, think about the applicants you receive. Would you accept someone to be a missionary with you if that person had no relationship or connection with any local church. As we consider these things, are they just questions of prudence, or are they important questions that get to the vital thread and core of what is the mission of the church? Well, these are all important questions, and we need to dive into the role the local church plays in the task of missions. And we'll learn about this and more in this episode of Big Truths. about this chain of missionary sending, it all really begins with God. God sent his Son. It was an act of the Trinity, but more particularly, the Father has sent the Son. The Son was willing to go. It was the plan of God according to their will the persons of the Trinity. So let's look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, as we consider what it means to be sent, this sort of chain of missionary sending that we see in the New Testament, that helps us understand how we are sent and what we're supposed to do as Christians. So John chapter 3, start reading in verse 16. For God so loved the world. In this way, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. See in this passage that God, more particularly God the Father, has sent the Son into the world. And there's a purpose. It's that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The Father did not send the Son into the world to destroy the world, but to have uh, the world have an opportunity to believe and in believing be saved. 
See that in verse 17? But that the world might be saved through him. But then we have to ask, saved from what? Well, in the context, we have verse 14. Jesus describing himself, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So under Moses, the people grumbled. They were deserving of punishment. The Lord sent serpents among them who bit them. Poison was in their veins. They were about to die. This venom in their blood. But the image of their judgment would be lifted up. A serpent, this bronze serpent would be lifted so that everyone who looks to the serpent would be saved. And Jesus is saying, so also I have been sent into the world. So that anyone who looks on me on the cross is what he's talking about, to be lifted up in this way. Uh, so that Jesus Christ would be lifted up as the very image of judgment, that he would be judged, and all who look to him could be saved from judgment. That he would be, as it were, treated as the serpent. He himself would be crushed. The one who crushes the serpent was himself crushed on the cross and became the image of our judgment was lifted up as man, as man was the one in Adam who sinned, so that we all sin. But if we look to him, we can be saved. So God the Father sent the Son so that we might be saved. There is a judgment coming. Whoever does not believe in him is judged. And Jesus one day will be the one that judges us based on us rejecting him. So God the Father has sent the Son. Turn back a few pages to the left. Well, now that Jesus has, in Luke 24, risen from the dead, he has accomplished salvation on the cross. He has been raised from the dead. But is this just for those who heard him audibly, that they could know this Jesus, believe in him, and so be saved? Is this a message for the Jews only? Luke 24, verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has promised to send the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son and the Father have sent the Spirit. Jesus promising to send the promise of the Father to them so that as others had opportunity to hear Jesus and believe on him, to look to him, now that he has been raised, scripture has been fulfilled, now that he is ascending to heaven, how will they hear? Well, the Spirit has been sent now to help us so that the disciples would go, they would declare repentance is available for the forgiveness of sins that we can be saved to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the Father has sent the Son. The Son has promised with the Father to send the Spirit. Well, that's good for the disciples, but what about the rest of the world? We'll turn to Acts chapter 9. 
How exactly does the Spirit help? Acts chapter 9, what does the Spirit do now that they have been clothed with power? How does the Spirit exactly help us? Acts 9.31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of what? Encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It, the churches, continued to multiply. So what's the church doing? Or excuse me, what's the Spirit doing among the churches? The church, the gathering, all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria were beginning to hear about what Jesus promised in the beginning of Acts, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And now we have Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So these people now are all believing in the name of Jesus. They're having peace. They're being built up. They're going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing all this work. So the Spirit is the one who's helping to gather and encourage the church. The Spirit's gathering them. They are the church, the assembly. We'll talk about that word in a couple minutes. But the assembly of believers, they're, how are they having peace? How are they being built up? They have to be together to hear these things, to understand the teaching. They go on in the fear of the Lord. They're encouraged in the Holy Spirit. And they're continuing to multiply as they speak of the news of Jesus. As others believe and are baptized, they're made a part of the number. It's all a part of the work of the Holy Spirit among the churches. So look at now 1119. So what's this church supposed to do now? Is it just for these cities and areas that they're believing? Look at chapter 11, verse 19. They experience persecution now. They're scattered. They're spread out like the scattering of seed. 11:19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas up north off to Antioch, who, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a purposeful heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, and what? Full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a considerable crowd was brought to the Lord. 
and he left for Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it happened that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a considerable crowd. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So what do we see here? How is the church being encouraged? What are some of the things that you're seeing? What's happening here? There's preaching. Uh, There's teaching as well. It's happening to all nations. There's encouragement. There's people believing the good news. They're growing. And now we have a man full of the Holy Spirit. What does a man full of the Holy Spirit do at the church? What do you see? He exhorts. He's encouraging them. What else is Barnabas doing? He's rejoicing. There's joy as well. Can we assume Barnabas is just meeting with one believer, then another individual believer, and then another individual believer? What's kind of the format here? It's the church, a large crowd. There's a gathering. He's getting help from Paul. Not only is he teaching, he's raising up leaders as well. So the Holy Spirit's gathering and encouraging the church. What does a spirit-filled man do? He's gathering and he's encouraging the church as well. The spirit-filled man is helping disciples deepen in their discipleship. He's raising up leaders. He's gathering with and teaching the church. Well, is it just for these disciples uh, who are having this ministry done through the church? Look at chapter 12, verse 24. 1224, how should we think about this kind of ministry? Is Barnabas just kind of doing his own thing? Look at 1224. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, fulfilling their ministry, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So how is ministry done here? It's not done apart from the church, is it? It's done through the church. The Holy Spirit works through the church, not apart from it. So why did they pick these men? Well, there was a time of evaluation. They had fulfilled ministry. They had proven themselves faithful. 
They got to know them. The Holy Spirit, uh, through prayer and fasting, especially to them, they were prophets as well, but the Holy Spirit setting them apart. But it wasn't just the Holy Spirit setting them apart. We see in verse 3, they fasted, they prayed, and they still chose to lay hands on them. The church still chose to lay hands on them, to set them out. Barnabas didn't just wake up and said, the Lord called me, see you later. I don't care what you think. <laughs> the church still had a process. The Holy Spirit was working through the church to set these men apart. The Holy Spirit was working through the church to evaluate these men. For Barnabas, in the context of the church, to raise up Paul and train him as a teacher. Their ministry was done through the church. Look at chapter 14. 1421. What exactly did the Holy Spirit set them apart to do? So the Holy Spirit set them apart for a work. What does that work look like? Look at 1421. Yeah, and after they had proclaimed the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we've seen the Holy Spirit gathering and encouraging the church. Barnabas, a spirit-filled man, he's gathering and encouraging the church. What are they doing here? for the work that the Holy Spirit wanted them to do and set them apart to do. They're gathering together with the church, strengthening the souls of the disciples, proclaiming the gospel. And not only has Barnabas raised up leaders and Paul, what are they doing now? Verse 21, 23 rather. They're pointing elders, overseers, pastors for them in every church. So we're seeing sort of a, a process here. So it seems like Paul's missionary method to start with entry they proclaim the gospel euangelion, the gospel, the good news, they're evangelizing, preaching the gospel and as people believe There's discipleship, but not just as individual loose kind of disciples like coins, like on a table, but they're gathered together. Coin, they're get, you know, I don't know, so whatever analogy makes sense to you. Coins in a coin jar rather than just scattered. Mm -hmm. There is healthy church formation. But not just healthy church formation, they're raising up leaders. And then they don't just stay there forever. After raising up leaders, they exit to partnership. There's kind of a process that they're going through that the Holy Spirit set them apart to do. 
You might be thinking, okay, well, I don't know, that's good for them. That's interesting. It's Paul's missionary method. I don't know, maybe we can improve on that, you might be thinking. Maybe I'm just going to do mine differently. Maybe I'm going to do my ministry apart from the local church and apart from local church oversight. God's called me. He set me apart to do something completely unique and new. Well, what do we think about that? Look at chapter 15. How do we think about people who individualistically go off on their own apart from the church? 15.22. They've had the Jerusalem Council. They've addressed a lot of serious problems because Judaizers have been telling new disciples, you've got to become Jews to be good Christians. So they've addressed that. Now they're going to correct this problem. 15.22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brothers who are elders to the brothers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of us to whom we gave no instruction have gone out and disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to select men to you, to select to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they got to clean up a mess now. Because this is the problem of ministry that's done apart from the church. These Judaizers have gone out not under the pastoral or theological oversight of the apostles. They're doing ministry apart from the teachings of the apostles, which we have as well in the New Testament. They've gone out without any church oversight. They've gone out without instruction from the church, the pastors and the apostles. And they caused a mess. This is the problem of highly individualistic ministry that's not under the oversight of pastors. That's done apart from the New Testament model. It was a mess and they had to clean it up. God has a good design for his church. Now, is this all kind of unique to Jerusalem and what they're doing between Antioch? Or is this kind of universal for New Testament ministry? Let's look at chapter 20 of the book of Acts. Acts 20, verse 16, Paul had been in Ephesus. Now he has to leave. Acts 20, 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Notice there's a plurality of elders in one church. Now look at verse 28. One just sentence that he says to them in this long instruction, 2028. 20, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we have three terms here. They are the elders... We also see the Holy Spirit has made them 
overseers, and their job is to shepherd, which is also where we get the word pastor. So this is one of the passages where we as Baptists believe there's one office with three different terms. Different denominations think there's more than the offices of pastor and elder. But we see here these three terms for this one office. Whose design was it to have elders, overseers, pastors be over churches? It's the Holy Spirit. This is God's design for the church, that there would be oversight on the teaching, that there would be in Ephesians chapter 4 ministry, this gift of shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that they wouldn't be hoodwinked all the time by false teaching, but they would be grounded and fed and grown in sound doctrine, speaking the truth in love. Is this unique even for Ephesus? No. One final passage. Let's look at the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. So Paul has been planting churches. He's got a job for Titus to finish the work. Titus 1, 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Paul has been going through this process. He has been entering cities. He's been proclaiming the gospel. And as he proclaims the gospel, there's going to be some that believe. And so there's this process of discipleship and gathering the disciples together and teaching them what it means to be a church. Paul had to leave. So he said, at this point, we're not in order yet. There's more work to be done. I need to set things in order so that I can leave and, as it were, be done with the work. So the last step is the raising up of leaders so that Paul could make an exit to leave them on their own. They're set as independent, autonomous churches. God intends for there to be healthy New Testament churches formed. Well, what does that look like? Paul labored, as you've read through his letters, that there would be healthy churches, that there would not be error in their doctrine or in their living. He wanted healthy churches. So as he has gathered them into disciples, what does it mean to be a healthy church? It means that there would be, there would be evangelism. There would be discipleship. So as he's gathering these disciples together, he's equipping them so that they would be sent out. They also would proclaim the gospel. They too would make disciples as well. There would be membership, meaningful membership in churches. That there would be leadership. That there would be preaching and teaching. That there would be the right practice of the ordinances. That there would be a right understanding and practice of the worship that God requires, and not a false worship. That there would be fellowship among the believers. 
that there would be prayer, that there would be accountability, and even when necessary, discipline. That there would be giving. That also there would be missions. So Paul labored among the churches that Christ would be formed in them. He labored that there would be healthy churches formed. So he wrote all of his New Testament letters encouraging these churches that he had planted as he had exited to partnership as there were elders among them. He still labored for them to be healthy churches, wrote back to them when they were not really sound in their doctrine or in their lifestyles. To the end, that this healthy church would send people out so that the process would begin again. The church sends her people out so that there would be another church. As we think about this process that God has sent the Son who has ascended and sent the Spirit, and the Spirit is gathering and encouraging churches as they go out preaching and teaching to all the nations and gathering them together and raising up leaders doing this whole process, the church the church sends her people so that there would be another church. And that church would send her people so that there would be another church. And we do this until we die or Jesus comes back as we make disciples. So one book I would commend to you, I've mentioned it before, a little book by Andy Johnson, Missions, How the Local Church Goes Global. I love one of the things that he said in this book. He said, each of us individually is called to obey Christ's command to make disciples who know and obey his word. But how does he intend us to do that? His word is clear. Normally, we are to pursue obedience, build up disciples, and plant other churches through the local church. Well, why? Why should this be done through the local church? How, should, how and why should we think about missions as being given to the local church. He gives a number of reasons. Number one, he says, the local church is the one who makes clear who is and who is not a disciple through baptism and membership in the body. So why is missions entrusted to the church? Because as a church who is entrusted to determine who is and who is not a discipleship and to publicly affirm them through baptism and membership, that's the church's job. One verse you can think about to 41 or 14? 41. It's the church's job to make clear who is and who is not a disciple through baptism and membership in the body. I'll say more about that later from Matthew 18 if we have time. 
What's another reason why the church should be central in missions? He says it's because the local church is where most discipling normally takes place. So if we're making disciples of all nations, it would make sense to make those disciples where discipling should take place. Think about Hebrews 24, 10, 24, and 25. Don't neglect the assembly. Why? Because it's here we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Another reason, as mentioned before, from Acts 13, 3, is because we see the pattern of the local church sending out its own missionaries. See the example in the New Testament is the local church sending out their missionaries. Number four, we also see the pattern in the New Testament of the local church caring for those missionaries after they are sent. about Philippians chapter 4, 15 and 16, as well as 3 John, the first few verses of that book. And he says, number five, the reason why the local church should be central to missions is because healthy, reproducing local churches are normally the aim and the end of our missionary effort. Healthy churches, according to the New Testament, are the aim and the end of our missionary efforts. Healthy local churches are the aim and the end of our missionary efforts. Think about Titus 1.5 and Acts 15.41. Why does God care so much about the church? Consider Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians 3.10, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. God cares about his own glory. So he cares about the church because it's the church that puts on the display of the glory of God. The church was God's idea. And by the way, all the apostles did their ministry through the local church. In the words of Andy Johnson, the local church is God's one and only organizational plan for world missions. God doesn't have a plan B. The church is God's one and only organizational plan for world missions. Which is another way of saying, the church is the goal and the means of mission. The church is the goal and the means of mission. Now, how does that jive with what we said on the very first 
time we met. Remember how I talked about things that are ultimate and things that are penultimate? Ultimately, missions is about the glory of God. That is what is ultimate. Flowers don't exist for the stems. Stems exist for the bud and bloom of the flower. But how is God glorified? Through the church. The goal and the means of missions, penultimately, is the church. Why do missions? So that there would be a new church. How do we get that church? What's the means? A church. Churches planting churches. Local churches are central to the New Testament plan. Missions is intensely congregational, not just intensely personal. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, I'm still not persuaded, David. I've read biographies of missionaries who just got a plane ticket and just went out and did missions, and they were fine. Because after all, I mean, Christianity, it's a relationship, right? It's not a religion. I don't really like this formal religion stuff. I mean, isn't it all really about following Jesus? Just me and Jesus. Why can't, you know, my church just be my buddies that I know and trust and just me? I don't need a church building. I like the realness and the closeness of just me and Jesus and a few of my friends. And besides, you may be thinking, David, can't I just get that one-way plane ticket and just go? Why slow down the process of getting involved with some sort of sending church? They probably got a missions committee. It's going to take a really long time. Why not just light our hair on fire, sell our property, embrace poverty, live in the jungle, and just teach Jesus? Okay, well, why not? Let's think about that. Let's go down that rabbit trail. Let's entertain the thought. Let's do that. Let's say you get your plane ticket. You go. And we'll just set aside all the problems of language barriers and just assume you already know the language. Maybe you took a bunch of Spanish in high school. So you just go and you share the gospel and praise God. You got a man, and he believes. One guy believes. Praise the Lord. What do you do now? Well, you memorize Matthew 28 in Sunday school. You know you're supposed to disciple. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So you baptize this guy, and you start discipling. What does this disciple need? To observe all of what Christ has commanded. You think, wow, that's a lot. So let's get started. I'm going to have to give this man the full counsel of God. There needs to be some kind of program of correct teaching. I don't want to teach this guy heresy, right? So there has to be some sort of pure teaching. We've got to be committed. We have to have a commitment to the pure word of God. And as you read the New Testament, as you seek to observe all of what Christ has commanded you, you're going to discover fairly quickly there's a lot of these one another commands. Love one another. Be tender-hearted toward one another. Forgiving one another. So what should disciples who follow Jesus do upon hearing these commands? They should commit to follow them, to do all that he has commanded. So now, 
as we commit to the pure word individually, we realize we got to have a commitment to the pure word collectively. Now, we got to make this commitment to do these commands together because I can't do one another commands by myself. They require one other. So I say to this man, I'm going to do this for you and you do this for me. We promise to obey God's word together. And we realize as we sit under God's word, we can't follow Jesus fully unless we do so with other disciples of Christ. So you also discover there's some commands like sing to one another. Okay, that's weird. Maybe just the two of us, we can just sing to one another, I guess. Now, what if another person gets saved? You got another guy saved. Now there's three of you. Should you introduce those two men to each other? Well, you would want them to meet and for, no, hush Siri, be quiet. <laughs> you would want them to meet together and both of them to understand that they need to do these one another commands also to each other. So the three of you have made a commitment to obey the Bible together. You want them both to sit under sound teaching. Now suppose one of these men shares the gospel with a third man from their tribe. You hear a report. Hey, my buddy, he believes in Jesus too. So what do you do? Well, I suppose you should baptize this man. We're going to assume the other two have been baptized already. Now suppose you're walking this third man down to the river to baptize him. And he mentions kind of offhandedly that he's so glad He's going to get baptized because once he gets into the water, now he knows for certain he will go to heaven. And he says he will try his hardest not to lose his salvation by sinning. But if he does, then he can just get baptized a second time or a third time. And he also says that he's going to honor Christ as first among all of his household gods he worships. Would you still baptize this man? Ah, we realize now it's not enough to get someone dunked in the water. You have to make sure there's a right administration of baptism. There has to be a right understanding of the gospel, of this pure word, and of being a disciple before we administer the sign of being a disciple. So as you continue to read the Bible with the disciples you've led to faith, suppose they encounter a passage about the Lord's Supper. They say they want to do this, too. So you make arrangements to take the Lord's Supper with them. But suppose one of them you learned just that morning. He left his wife for another woman. He has committed a public scandalous sin in the tribe. And he comes now up to you to take the Lord's Supper, all while saying, It's okay. It's okay. I am forgiven in Jesus. Do you give the Lord's Supper to him? No. Does not your commitment to the pure word, to following scripture, mean you obey 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, That whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? You following the pure word means you need to keep that as well. And sometimes tell someone, no, you can't have the Lord's Supper. So you realize you need to properly administer also the ordinance of the Lord's table. And sometimes even fence it and say who may and who may not take it. So you have gone to this tribe to make disciples. And as you have 
endeavored to make disciples, you realize you have to have a commitment to the pure word. You also have, a, have to have a commitment to the pure administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have a commitment to the pure preaching of the word of God and the gospel and to the right administration of the ordinances. Well, what do we call a body of disciples who have made a commitment together to obey the Lord by sitting under the pure preaching of the word and the pure administration of the ordinances? That, my friends, is what the New Testament calls a church. If we are to be disciples and to make disciples of all nations, there's no way around meaningful membership in a local biblical New Testament church. If you're disciples who say you want to obey all of what Jesus has commanded us to do, so try your best to avoid the church. But if you seek to follow Jesus, there's no way around what have historically been called the two marks of the true church, the pure word and the pure administration of the ordinances. Frankly, friends, it is malpractice to attempt to make disciples and not place them in the institution that Christ has established for his disciples. So if missionaries go out to save as they should, it's a question of save unto what? To be a lifelong disciple of Jesus. Yes, but where is that done best? Where did God intend our discipling normally to take place? And who has been entrusted with the responsibility of making disciples? It's the church, because the church was Jesus' idea. In, by the way, he chose that term. Jesus picked the word church. That wasn't a later invention. So turn with me in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. So unfortunately, we don't have too much time to do a full exposition of this passage. If you're interested in where I've written a whole lot, thousands and thousands of words just on the doctrine of the church in Matthew 18, come see me. I'm happy to share those articles with you. But we have this word church. You even see that in, let's see, Matthew 18. I'm trying to discover that. Where is it? There it is, verse 17, 18, 17. And if he, this unrepentant man, refuses to listen to them, the witnesses, tell it to the church. This isn't a later term coined by the apostles. Jesus chose this word church. Make sure I spelt that right in English. Ekklesia is the Greek, ekklesia, compound word, ek, and kalo, ex, ek, is kind of the same, kalo, ek, kalo. So ex was where we get explosion, excavate, it means out. Kalo is call, it's where we get the English call from the Greek kalo, call, called, out is what the word means. Those who are called out. So there have been some who have taken this meaning and try to spiritualize it. They say Christians are those who are called out 
from the world. Uh, generally, that's spiritually true, but that's not actually what the word means. It means those who are called out from a larger body to a smaller body for political purposes. So one Greek-English lexicon says this, the term ecclesia was in common usage for several hundred years before the Christian era. For example, in the ancient city-state of Athens, 600 years before the birth of Christ, they had the ecclesia, the common assembly. The word ecclesia means gathering, assembly, congregation, those who have been called out and gathered for a purpose. So Jesus has given authority to the gathering of Christians, the church. See that in Matthew 16 and 18. In summary, they are those who gather in his name. You see that in 1820. For two or three have gathered together in my name. The word church means assembly, gathering, congregation. There are those who have gathered in his name. They make decisions in his name. So Matthew 1820 is not about poorly attended prayer meetings. I know there's only four of us here tonight, but remember what Jesus said. Two or three have gathered in his name. There I am among you. Verse 20 is when you vote someone out of church. It's when you baptize someone into the church. Jesus is saying, I am among you, and I approve of what you have done. Insofar as you have acted according to confession of Peter and examining this person's life and confession. We're those who have the keys of the kingdom to bind or to loose. And what we have bound here on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And that which is loosed here on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. To bind or to loose is to render a judgment or a verdict in heaven's name. So the kings of the kingdom, they deputize the holder to pronounce a judgment. The keys of the kingdom deputize the holder to pronounce a judgment concerning concerning the who and the what of discipleship. Concerning the who and the what, rather, of the gospel, excuse me. The keys of the kingdom deputize the holder to pronounce a judgment concerning the who and the what of the gospel. In other words, what is the right confession and who is a right confessor? Keys of the kingdom deputize the holder to pronounce a judgment concerning the what and the who of the gospel. Peter was the one who proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right. Your name's Peter, the rock. I'm going to build my church on you, which we believe is also built on the confession of Peter as well. So those who have the keys of the kingdom, we are those who know and understand what that confession is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have a right understanding of the gospel. The confession of Peter is our confession as well. But also we need to examine, as Matthew 18 says, who is the right confessor of that gospel? 
There are those who may claim to follow Christ and have the confession of Peter, but their lives don't match up with that. And so we have to put them out of the church sometimes because they are not a right confessor of the confession. So remember, judges don't make laws, nor do they make someone innocent or guilty. Judges compare one's actions against the law to determine if they're innocent or guilty. So when you walk into a courtroom to be on trial, you're already innocent or guilty, already. It's the judge's job to find out which based on the law. So what's the job of the church? In one sense, either you believe or don't believe in the gospel. Either you have made the same confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of a living God, as Peter has, and you've submitted your life to him, or you have not. Time will tell, and the church is going to have to find out, because the church's job is to inspect us as discipleship inspectors, and what we do is declare our findings publicly. We affirm disciples and their discipleship. When we vote someone into membership or baptize them, we're saying, yes, we think you are a Christian. Yes, we think you understand what is the gospel. You understand what is the right confession. And therefore, in examining their life, we think you are a confessor. So we're going to publicly affirm that and, as it were, loose here on earth what shall have been loosed in heaven. We declare you a Christian here on earth, and we pray that if we've done our job well, according to Scripture, Jesus Christ and the Father will say that as well in heaven, that you are saved. Well, how do we do that? What do we have to have? We have to have the pure word and the pure administration of the ordinances. By who we baptize, we say something publicly about their discipleship, about what they believe and who they are as confessor of that, who we give the Lord's Supper to as well. Now, you might be thinking, with seven minutes left, what in the world does this have to do with missions? David, I thought this was a missions class. You're teaching us the doctrine of the church. I want to know about missions. When are you going to talk about missions? The answer is, I'm teaching you about missions. Because you can't replicate what you've never seen. You can't plant what you don't know. If the local church is to plant local churches and reproduce, we need to know what is a local church. If we're to make disciples of all nations, and these are the means that God has given us, for our entrance into discipleship as we hear the pure gospel preached and taught and we believe. These are the means that God has given us to affirm our discipleship in the gospel. And these are the means that God has designed for our growth in our discipleship, which is another way of saying the church is the end and the means of missions. The goal and the means of missions. So what does that look like practically? What exactly is the church supposed to do in this work of missions? Uh, one of, I think it was Andy Johnson, I read this somewhere else. He was teaching a Sunday school class, but here's what he wrote down I thought was helpful. So what does it mean for a local church to be central in sending missionaries? How do we actually do this. The four things he mentions, 
how exactly is the local church central in missions? There's four things, he writes. Number one is evaluation. Like Barnabas and Saul, there's an evaluation as we think about who we ought to send. Local churches should be evaluating that, inspecting people, getting to know them as well. Local churches should be training. Training and teaching. Teaching what is the gospel, what is missions, what's the goal of the church. Local churches should be sending. And supporting. Sending and supporting as well as overseeing and caring. Overseeing their work, overseeing their doctrine, caring for them as they have needs. So you might be thinking, what about mission organizations? Well, we don't have time to get into that tonight, but uh, the short answer is we love mission sending agencies. There's a place for them. Um, I'd be happy to talk about all the unique things they can give that a local church can't give. But with our time remaining, I just want to think a few minutes about how does FBC Lindale do this? How do we imagine, oversee, conceptualize what our job is for missions here at this church? How does First Baptist Church Lindale do this? Number one, teaching God's word is our most fundamental missions task. Teaching God's word is our most fundamental missions task. Teaching God's Word is how this all begins. One of our most important tasks is shaping our congregation's view of the gospel as glorious. To shape our view in seeing the gospel as glorious. One of the shocking things Andy Johnson says in his book is that one of the things that's going to help most churches with their missions is to stop talking so much about missions and start talking about the gospel. I just love that. Because that's not how you're going to motivate people by just talking about missions and statistics of lostness and every single time your heart beats 36 more people die. That's not going to fuel you long term for missions. A glorious picture and vision of the gospel is going to sustain you and motivate you for missions, for giving and for going. And also it's our job as a church to teach how uh, we need to organize our lives around the gospel, whether, whether it's here or if it's overseas. That's really secondary. But all of us as Christians should be organizing our lives around the gospel, thinking about how can I be sharing the gospel during my lunch break? How can I be displaying the beauty of the gospel in my own life? 
whether that's going to be here or overseas, in a way, that's secondary. And we believe that being a biblical church is the organizational means. Just simply being a biblical church helps us so much with missions. The American church may not be easily replicated overseas, but a biblical church can be replicated. Therefore, the more biblical we are, the more easily we can send people out and plant churches. So I believe right now we're training missionaries in our church. They just don't know they're going to be missionaries yet. The goal over there is to reproduce what you see here without all the cultural baggage. But if we're biblical Christians, then that is reproducible. It takes healthy local churches to produce healthy local churches. And sometimes the missions field is just so bad out there because a lot of missionaries just don't understand, frankly, what is a healthy local church and what they should be building toward as well. But, well, that's all the time we have for tonight. A lot of things still left to discuss, like what's the role of healthy mission sending agencies. Uh, maybe next week we'll get to that as well. But any final clarifications before we close in prayer tonight? Okay. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are so thankful that you have decided to put on display your own glory through us, that through this church, you are glorified by a display of the power of your gospel. We pray, Lord, that our church, as we continue to study the book of Romans, we would see a glorious vision of the gospel and that people, young and old, single and married, would want to organize their lives around the gospel and may some of them, Lord, decide that this is so worth it. The gospel is so wonderful. God is so glorious that they would want even to leave uh, this, air, this area to make sacrifices for the cause of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that all of us in our own ways would be making sacrifices as we organize our lives around this gospel. And so glorify you and grow in our discipleship. We pray that the Lord's word among us would be honored. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week. We'll